0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone.
1: It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation, and sometimes from around the world to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a really interesting show for you today that will inform you and and perhaps concern you after you hear what our guest has to say. We'll be discussing the Sahel region on the African continent, which, sadly, has become a major global hospital for jihadist terrorism. With us to discuss this important topic is an international security expert, Mr. Fidel Amache Owusu. Fidel Amache Owusu is an international relations and security analyst from the Republic of Ghana. He's the chief executive officer of DEFSEC Analytics Africa Limited, a consultancy firm that specializes in security and investment in Africa. He's also an associate and senior conflicts analyst at the Conflicts Research Consortium for Africa, and Fidel has previously hosted an international affairs program with the Ghana Broadcasting Corporation. He's also previously held positions as special assistant to a former vice president of Ghana and as a research and personal assistant at the Office of the President of Ghana. Fidel Amachewuso is a prolific writer on international relations issues, specializing in African affairs and security, and I can attest to that because he and I are connected on LinkedIn, and it is amazing to me how prolific a writer he is, and so insightful. Fidel, welcome to National Security This Week.
2: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you.
1: All the way from Accra, Ghana, yes?
2: Yes, um, West Africa, Accra, Ghana, and uh, we are... In the tropics, and I understand that U.S., uh, you have started your summer, and so more or less, we are both enjoying some warm weather um, across the world, yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it'll be a warm one here today in Minnesota. So, uh, Fidel, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, There's a lot to cover this morning. Uh, I really want to tap into your expertise, so let me start with this question as we inform our, our listeners what exactly is the Sahel? What are, what are the d- geographic boundaries of that region? Uh, which nations are in the Sahel? And can you explain the demographics of the region as well? Who, who lives there? What kind of economy is in that area of Africa?
2: Thank you very much, um, First of all, um, you rightly mentioned that um, the Sahel is in Africa. And which part of Africa is exactly starts from the Atlantic Ocean in uh, West Africa, right through the middle of Africa, Central Africa, to the Red Sea um, on the shores of Eritrea, a very reclusive state in Africa. But um, vegetation-wise, this um, area is semi-arid and an arid region. So we have the Sahara, the Southern Sahara Desert. And the semi-arid vegetation, that is the typical Sahel. So we have short grass with scattered um, trees in this vegetation. Now, the countries you can find in this uh, region are Senegal. you find um, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Chad, that is the Republic of Chad, in Central Africa, Sudan, and Eritrea. So these are the countries that you can find there. You find some part of the Sahel vegetation going to the lower savannah in Central African Republic. So essentially, the Sahel is found between the forest regions of Africa and the Sahara Desert, the Northern Sahara Desert. And this is a very important region because it cuts across several countries, that have growing population, a lot of resources, and so much poverty. That is the irony of the region or the paradox, if you can, so to speak, that the region has so much poverty but has a lot of resources and has a lot of potential. We have uranium there, we have gold, we have other rare earth that is very much needed in the Silicon Valley that is found there. We also have um, strategic um, resources like oil and gas. So Chad has a lot of oil. Sudan has, has it in other countries. We have part of the Sahel in northern Nigeria, itself the number two oil-producing country in Africa. So the Sahel is a rich region with so much poverty. That is the paradox. And then a growing population that uh, we find over there.
1: And and who are some of the the peoples that inhabit this whole region that goes essentially from the Atlantic coast all the way over to the Red Sea in this in this bordered area between the Sahara Desert and uh, the start of I guess the tropical vegetation is that right?
2: Yes, sir. So yes. Sir.
1: Who, who are the people that live across that region?
2: Yeah. So um, ethnically, the Sahel is a very diverse region. We have so many groups. But the most dominant of these groups are the Tuareg. Then we have the Daza in the, in the Sudan and the uh, Chad Basin. Then we have the Hausa in the Niger area. We have the Fulani, or the people known as the Fulbe. the Fulbe group, cutting across several countries. So you can find the Fulani. It's a pastoral group that is in Senegal. You find them in Mali. They are in northern Burkina Faso, in northern Nigeria, and in southern Niger. And even when you move on to Chad and northern Cameroon in Central Africa, you still find this group there. They are pastoral groups or nomadic groups that move their animals from one place to another. Now, one thing that is very important is that this or the region is very porous. The borders in the region's are very porous. It means that people move freely from one country to another. Not because states want that to happen, but it's because most of the people who live in this region are pastoral people, or people who move with animals from one place to another in a transhuman occupation, fending for the animals and looking for greener pastures for them. So, unlike what we have in the United States, where people run ranches and other forms of modern agriculture, this lifestyle in the Sahel has been with the people for so long a time. And so the Fulani, the Tuareg, the Arab population, and other Arabized groups cut across the region. And the kind of relationship that these groups have really, really has a lot to do with what is happening currently in respect of security in the region. We also have other groups that are agriculturists or sedentary farmers. And these groups are like the uh, Dogon group, the Bambara. We have the Wolof in Senegal. We have the Hausa in Northern Nigeria. And we have other um, agriculturalists in the region. And the clashes between these and the kind of conflict that happens between them is what we, move on, we will discuss in relation to what the terrorism that has taken foothold in the region.
1: So is the Sahel? You mentioned that the borders are fairly porous; that people move freely across the borders. These uh, herd herdsmen, I guess, is a good way to to put it. People pastoral uh, lifestyle, but there's also all of these resources, these natural resources that clearly need sort of an industrial scale uh, extraction process. So is the Sahel sort of a crossroads uh, for other regions of Africa? I mean, did, are there tra- you know critical transit corridors that pass? through the Sahel, or or is it sort of self-contained based on the geography?
2: Mm. So that is a very important question, in that the Sahel, as I said, cuts through right in the middle of Africa. So it actually connects the northern hemisphere to the south. So before you get to tropical Central Africa and Southern Africa, where we have countries like South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Mozambique and other regions, you needed to go to the Sahel again, in the, the Sahel can be grouped into three different zones. we have the western side, western African side of the Sahel, we have the Central African side of the Sahel, and then we also have the eastern corridor. So in the central Africa, we have the country called Chad. It is the largest landlocked country in Africa. It doesn't have access to the coast. And it is very huge. It has a very huge geography. It is bigger than France, Germany, and Poland combined. When you combine the size of France, which is the largest country in Western Europe, and Germany and Poland together, Chad is bigger. Wow. And this country connects Northern Africa with Central Africa. It also connects Western Africa to where we call the Horn of Africa, where we currently find Sudan the country that is currently in turmoil, and Ethiopia and other countries, that is where we find them. So the the chart connects these things, and so the Sahel is very strategically located, and what happens there has a lot of implications for the rest of Africa.
1: Yeah, I don't want to diverge too much from my, my plan here today, but I do note in listening to your discussions, and, and certainly as we, as we track on what's happening in the news, uh, this, this uh, Sahel region that we're talking about, that does cut right across the central part of Sudan, uh, and Khartoum is located right there in the, in the middle of the Sahel, uh, and also connected yeah, exactly. directly to Eritrea, and Eritrea has become sort of a global hotspot uh, for influence uh, between the United States and China, even. Uh, so this is fascinating. This is a, really a fascinating uh, region of of the world. How about political governance across the Sahel? How, how, how stable and effective are the governance are the governments that are responsible for parts of Africa covered either in whole or in part by the Sahel?
2: Mm. Yes. Yeah, so um, a region full of resources, with groups that are that that are very ethnocentric. In in approach to politics, and um, has a lot of porous borders. What it means is that politics in this region has been very volatile and very, very uh, troubling. In that, it takes so much tact and a, a, a strategy in order to hold on to power in 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 the Sahel. So democracy is very rare to find mm. as we speak only two countries hold elections, free elections or some relatively free elections in the Sahel. And these two countries are Mauritania and the Republic of Niger. Mm-hmm. There's also Niger, so a landlord country located in the Western half of Central uh, Africa or West Africa. So you realize that uh, these two countries are the only democracies. Recently, There has been a lot of coup d'état in the region. So Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad, and currently Sudan has military rulers in charge of these countries. In Eritrea, we've had a detector or an authoritarian government that has been in place since 1993 when the country succeeded from Ethiopia. So if you look at the wider region, Democracy is very rare to find. And again, even when the military governments are in power, their power is very tenuous and very temporal. In that, in some of these countries that I've mentioned, like Burkina Faso and Mali, you would find that military rulers who had come to the barrel of the gun have been removed by their fellow generals or, uh, I mean, lower rank. Officers like captains. So in Burkina Faso, the last Timber uh, Lieutenant Colonel, who was in charge, was removed by a captain. Mm. And so this is what's happening in the Sahel. So politically, it is a very tenuous region. We also have Senegal, also a democracy. I think that I earlier forgot to mention that. But the most important thing is that Senegal is currently in political turmoil because the civilian leader is refusing to leave or he has been ambiguous with the future of the country. In that, in a the, in the few months, his tenure will be over. He has, I mean, exhausted his two terms in office. And naturally he's supposed to step aside for other, I mean, politicians to step in, but he has kept mute. He doesn't want to talk about his future. It led to some turmoil that has captured international news headlines in
1: recent times, mm. uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security this week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Fidel Amache Wusu, and we're discussing the Sahel region of Africa, the world's current epicenter of jihadist terrorism. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Fidel, we've learned from you about the geography of the Sahel region in Africa, and a bit about the people, governance, and the economics of the region as well. Uh, how and also why did salafi jihadism grow so rapidly uh, in the region and can you give us kind of a rundown on the different terror groups that uh, are are resident in certain portions of the Sahel today
2: mm. thank you very much we've gotten to the um um main issue as you rightly put it now the Sahel is in turmoil it is in chaos There's so much death, and it is now accounting for more than half of global uh, jihadist death or death that has been caused by jihadism. And so over 50% of all death that has resulted from jihadism globally comes from the Sahel region, and specifically the western half of the Sahel. So we are not even talking about Sudan yet. We are not talking about Eritrea. We are talking about Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and other littoral, the northern sections of some littoral states or coastal states in West Africa. Now, the groups that are, before we go to how the group started or why the Sahel has become a hotspot for global terrorism, some of the groups that we find there are the JNIM, Um, It is in Arabic, and this acronym is in Arabic, and it actually means the Movement for the Protection of Muslims and Islam.
1: Mm.
2: And this group is based, it has its headquarters in central and northern Mali, and it has spread to the rest of the region in a very ferocious and a very aggressive way. Now, we also have ISIS in the greater Sahel. So, Islamic State has a franchise in West Africa, Sahel, and so that group is called ISIS in the Greater Sahel or Islamic State, Greater Sahel Province. Mm. Then we also have Islamic State, West African Province that is based in Chadian or the Chad Lake Chad Basin in beyond north, northeastern Nigeria into central Chad. This group is based there, and it's causing a lot of havoc as well. Now, within the JNIM, the JNIM is a federation of al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. The JNIM is actually a federation. So uh, I in, in JNIM, sorry, the, the, the acronym is JNIM, the, we have the al-Murabitun. Al-Murabitun is simply referring to the Amoravid movements of the Middle Ages in West Africa. That was before Islam came to West Africa. Most of the people there were people who were into paganism and um, animism, worshipping of idols and all that. And then Christianity came through the coast. Islam entered the West African region through the deserts, the Saharan deserts. And the group that brought Islam were called the Amoravids. And so this group, known as Al-Murabitun, that is to pronounce Al-Murabit in Arabic. So it becomes Al-Murabitun. They believe that they have to spread Islam or bring back the Middle Ages version of Islam back to West Africa. That is their belief. Now, we have Al-Sardin. Al-Sardin is also mainly a Tuareg Islamist group that is also part of this group. Then we have Katiba Masina, that is based in central Mali. And that group um, was by a Fulani cleric who was able to whip up Islamic sentiments and other sentiments to create that group. There are other groups like Ansarul in northern also led by a Fulani, a, was created by a Fulani who has since been killed in, in, in a clash with forces against, fighting against jihadism. Now, all these groups, about five to six of them, have come together under the umbrella of JNIM and are led by a Tuareg no, known as Iyad Ag Ghali, leading them to cause mayhem in the region. But one thing that is most important is that between Islamic State affiliates or franchise and al-Qaeda groups, there are some major misunderstandings. And in recent times, and as I currently speak to you, there are clashes. And that is the old news about their presence there. Apart from that, all they have caused is mayhem... Mayhem and mayhem.
1: So that is fascinating. I, I actually had no idea the the complexity of the situation in the Sahel with regard to these uh, jihadi groups. So you're telling me that the JNIM, JNIM, as the abbreviation is, uh that that's a consortium of about six Al Qaeda affiliated groups. And then you also has have the Islamic State uh in the Sahel province. That's a separate group. And then there was a third group. What was the what was the third group that you'd mentioned?
2: That 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 is uh, Islamic Islamic state in West Africa the West African province oh, Islamic that's right, that's right. Yep, yeah that's
1: right. Yeah. So are those terrorist groups are they receiving outside support? I mean, are there governments other governments in the region or, or around the Sahel that provide covert support to these groups, perhaps to keep a, a neighboring nation off balance, uh, or or even somewhere else across Africa or, or the Middle East? Or are these groups kind of truly homegrown terror groups? that are adherents to this uh, Salafi jihadist movement ideology, and they use illicit networks to acquire weapons after raising funds through various nefarious criminal enterprises. Uh, how, how are these groups getting the funding that they need to uh, to wage their uh, their campaigns?
2: Mm. So uh, before uh, we we an earlier question you asked, how did this start? Uh, uh, before I come to funding, I would like to go to how it started. Yeah, please. Now yes. Now um in West Africa, uh, Islam is the most dominant religion as far as the Sahel is concerned. If you can't the the, the the more you move southward, the more you make Christianity. But as went north northward into the Sahel, you you find more Muslims. So most of the countries in West Africa belong to the Organization of Islamic Countries, OIC. It is only Ghana and Liberia that are not members of the OIC, the Organization of Islamists. Now, this, uh, before our audience confuse uh, Islamic States as a terrorist group, with Organization of Islamic States, <laughs> I would like to explain. Organization of Islamic States is a legal organization of Islamic countries or countries that have come to share their problems and support each other. So that is a very legal organization that's engaged in charity and all that. That is different from Islamic State as a terrorist organization. But my point here is that because of the dominant uh, Islamic population in West Africa, many of the countries are members of the organization Islamic countries, which is a very legitimate group. However, when, so uh, to make things go back to the point, that how did jihadism become so pervasive in a, a, a region that didn't have that before, yeah. even though it is dominated by Islam? Islam in West Africa has been there for centuries. And the school of thought that is most dominant is the Maliki group. The Maliki group believe that religion should factor in the local culture. The local culture of the people should be factored into religion. So that form of Islam is very liberal, accommodating, and live peacefully side by side other religions. So you could be an animist. You, find your, your, you, you could be an animist or a pagan or an idol worshipper, and you find yourself living in peace with a Maliki Islam, a, a Islamic person. You could be a Christian, and you find yourself living in peace. However, over time, there is this Wahhabism and Salafism that has crept into these kind of populations and radicalized them over time. And even though that has been happening... It has not been so revolutionary it has been incremental I mean time it's slow and it's getting in, creeping into the population now how is this jihadist organization creeping in the 1990s there was a Algerian civil war between islamists in Oja against the government after an election was held, the military corded off the islamists decided to resort to Bombings and attacks against the central government of Algeria. Now, in the 2000s, there were some peace agreements. However, not all the factions, factions in southern Algeria agreed to this peace arrangement. So the remnants of that civil war moved southward into Mali. And that was the creation, that was genesis of the creation. Of Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. So that was the first terrorist organization to formally establish a foothold in the Sahel in the early 2000s. After Bin Laden caused the September 11 attack, or was behind the September 11 attack, and he was on the run, was running for his life in Afghanistan. These rebels decided to affiliate their organization with Al Qaeda. Okay. And so they had that kind of freedom and the independent operates. However, there was an affiliation. Later on, there was a problem. And what was this problem? This was a problem of secessionism in Mali. So in, the, in Northern Mali, the geography and the topography and uh, the demography of northern Mali is very different from that of the south. Now, even though the Hocan is Islam, the Tuareg are mostly in the north, and they have been fighting for their independence for a very long time. And the great amongst them, they, they do not ask for independence, but they do ask for autonomy. But then, over the decades, the central government in the south has consistently denied the Tuareg that kind of independence. Ah. So the radicals amongst them have also become Salafi Islamists who has created or who have created another group known as Ansar Deen. So Ansar Deen is also another group that belongs to NIM. So this Ansar Deen and um, Akeem, that is Al Qaeda, Arab or Islamic Maghreb were the first to establish a foothold, and from then on, the the rippling effect has been what we see currently. Hmm. Now the funding, um, like in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, terrorists or terror groups in the uh, West African Sahel have a lot of access or has have a lot of assets to abundant resources. Okay. These groups have gold. They have gold, have minerals. Now, gold. Burkina Faso and Mali are one of the largest producers of gold in the whole Africa. Most of gold is mined or extracted through what we call artisanal mining. So it is done by the house. They use pan and they use very rudimentary. Um, to extract the gold from the the, the the ore. Now, these terrorists have decided to create safe for most of these young youth who are unemployed and are into artisanal mining. So what they do is that they grant them protection in exchange for gold. Again, they also exploit the nomadic group like the Fulani and other herders in the region. By taking tax, which in Islam is a form of tax for the poor, they take it from these pastoralists, sometimes in the form of extortion, and they sell it in the more wealthier South, East, like Ghana, Nigeria, South Nigeria, Benin, Togo, d'Ivoire and other countries. So by so doing, you have to raise a lot of money and we know the international price of gold. So they make a lot of money. And I have written over the time that I am very sure that terror groups in West Africa may be sponsoring terrorism as a whole by supporting some of the groups in West Asia, Southern Asia, and other places. So they are very wealthy. Even Central Africa, we have a, that's a terrorist group that deals in timber, the Fortress, and exports, and they have this complex network that they're able to use. And as we have earlier mentioned, the place is very porous, the borders are very porous, and it's a vast region where you wouldn't be able to find enough human resource to man the borders. So these groups move as and when it pleases them, and they operate mostly at border regions. They can easily cross border when the heat is becoming too much from one side, and then find safe haven in the other uh, in the other side of the border.
1: Thank that, you very much. Yeah, that 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 is fascinating. <laughs> I just I just learned an uh, an incredible amount of information. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, so, Fidel, we have to take just a short commercial break to recognize our sponsor. We'll be back in about uh, forty five seconds.
0: Yeah. National Security this week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at Cybersecurity summit
1: and we're back here on national security this week. Our guest is amache Machewusu from uh, Accra, Ghana, and we are talking about the Sahel region in Africa. Uh, Fidel, let's let's discuss the counterterrorism side a bit, uh, both a policy and strategy uh, aspects, and maybe tactics too. Uh, you mentioned governance in our first segment. Uh, now we've also received a, a primer from you on which groups are operating in the Sahel, the sort of the dangers they pose. Uh, how they got going. By the way, I did not. I studied the armed Islamic group in, in Algeria in, in the early 90s. I had no idea <laughs> that they are the ones who sort of facilitated the creation of uh, the Salafi movement uh, in, in this part in the Sahel. Uh, what What is the policy on terrorism from the governments of the nations that are most impacted by these groups? So I would assume that that's probably uh, Mali, uh, Burkina Faso and, and Niger. Is that right? What, what are their policies with regard to yes. terrorism?
2: Yes, sir. Yeah, and so when these issues started, initially, governments in the region had not taken this seriously. Oops. They (laughs) had thought that because, you know, these countries are very vast countries, very huge. I mean, per African, they're very huge, and European standards. And so you would realize that when it started in the north, Many of the governments who are mostly based in the South were not so much concerned that it was a troublesome area and perhaps um, this jihadism will find its way out eventually. That that was the, that was, looked like the body language of political decisions. Over time, the threat became so real. And so the first instance, we use government forces as a bulwark against the Southward movement of the jihadism. But in 2012, the the turning point of the shared area or point was in 2011 2012 when Al Qaeda, the Islamic Maghreb, and Al Sardin decided to create an Islamic State in Normale. Interestingly, this Islamic State was created before the Islamic State that we know of in. Syria and Iraq mm. in 2014. Hmm. So before Syria and Iraq, we had Islamists created in Africa. And the problem is that mostly international communities don't really look at Africa that much, or they don't cover issues in that that much. And that is why I'm in this interview, or you have shown so much interest. And I think that's was blame for that, because most of the issues in Ara are in the banner, and when others happen where, I mean people tension. But before the creation of Islamic State in West Asia or the Middle East, we had it in Africa, and it's just two years apart. This group created Islamic State in Tra-Mali in one very popular Asian town known as Tumbuktu. Tumbuktu. Mm. It has one of the oldest universities in the world. And a lot of manuscripts that have lasted for centuries. And this region was taken over by Akim and Ansardine in Central um, After that, these groups felt that they were very strong. It took France. So the first strategy was that government decided to use their own forces, Malian forces, but it wasn't enough. So France came in. And the first operation was Operation Seval, and uh, Seval, in, 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 if you translate, it's like to sever. I mean, to to, to decapitate the, 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 the authority or the, the leaders of, of 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 jihadism. But that was not effective that much. So it was followed by Operation Bain, that dislodged this group in Central Europe. At, uh, sorry, Central Mali, and dispersed them. Again, Operation Bakane also cut the weapon supply routes from Mali. At that time, coincidentally, Gaddafi had been overthrown, and his armories had been looted by a lot of the uh, uh friends that were with him. They had looted some of these armories, and so there was proliferation of weapons southward from Libya. Mm. And really emboldened or really made them very bold in pursuing their political agenda in the Sahel. And we also had these legitimate, as I've mentioned earlier, secessionary groups in the Tuareg wanted to create a state of their own. The terrorists took advantage of this, tried to radicalize who were seeking legitimate self-determination, and put them in their ranks to swell their ranks and make them very vulnerable and they created a lot of havoc. Mm.
0: 2014,
2: after the space out, they were there and regrouped. And after grouping, they became very strong. The creation of the JNIM was part of the grouping strategy by the jihadists. While this, this was happening, most African were fighting jihadism individually. So, the French then again asked that, uh, encourage the formation of the G5. The G5 are uh, five Sahel states that were brought together to coordinate and cooperate militarily to fight terrorism. So the states were Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and the Republic of Chad. In Central Africa. So this uh five countries joined the J5 Sahel states in order to coordinate their forces to fight them, and that was quite effective. It kept it did not quench the fire, but it kept the terrorists at bay and reduced the fatalities and the spread. But eventually there were coup details in the region. When these coup details happened, it changed the face of the counter-terrorism efforts. Mm. Now, what happened was that there were regional forces, UN-backed regional forces, and other uh, UN forces from Canada and other countries who stationed in Mali, Faso, and Ada, and Niger, and the greater South in order to fight Terrorism. Now, when these coups happened, the leaders of the coup became more protective of themselves because what they feared most was not terrorism. They feared that they themselves were overthrown by their own colleagues. So they decided to find ways and means to protect themselves first before uh, fighting terrorism in fact or in, in reality. So in Mali, Mali invited Wagner from Russia. A private
1: new company. Yeah, I, I definitely want. I want to ask you uh, actually a dedicated question about Wagner in a little in a little bit.
2: All right, all right. So, so all these me, uh, groups or military, brought, I mean, concentrated or focused on personal security gains that of the state. So it made the situation worse, and the bringing in of other groups meant that the fight was not taking international political and when that happens then there's this form of battle or necessary political battle that interferes with the actual fight against terrorism so the fight started as individual military fight, then it came to regional forces in the form of game five coming together we also had international forces by the u.n also fighting or coming together to push back the terrorists, and then the coming in of the soldiers in the form of coup d'etat, taking over from civilian guards, and over concentration on their personal security against that of the state. And as we have it, the situation is getting worse and worse because the strategy has not been sustained, and the coming in of the military has been disruptive mm. there's one other important point the europe encouraged Israel state to pursue the necessary domestic reforms that will help avoid the situation or help uh, the terrorists from ghetto collaboration niger did fantastic on that score but in the case of mali the leaders were diligently with that reform. And as we currently see, Niger, even though has serious insecurity within there, has a better situation than that of Mali. So if you took reform very um, seriously as part of your counterterrorism measure, you some result. And if you neglected it, you face a worse Scenario
1: uh so fidel uh that 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 is fascinating that leads me to there are at least a dozen follow up questions that I'd like to ask of you. Unfortunately, Lovely. we only have about fifteen minutes left in the show today. It's amazing how fast the time mm-hmm. goes by. Uh, I'm going to ask you if we could, because uh, you know our connect, we're we're talking to each other on video from halfway around the world. Uh, unfortunately, we're having a little bit of a delay. I'm wondering if I could ask you to turn your video off, and we'll just okay. we'll just concentrate on the audio connection here over Zoom. Okay. Uh, maybe that'll give right. uh, a little be- a little better yeah. quality signal. So what I hear you saying is that the the international community stepped in uh, to try to assist the governments in the Sahel in defeating the Salafi jihadist groups. And they had some success, but it was actually sort of counterproductive in many ways, uh, because the the military strategy only is not uh, has not proven successful in defeating uh, the scourge of terrorism. That you actually need to reform uh, comprehensively across uh, government, across uh, military engagement, but most importantly, uh, maybe in the economic sector. And, and I know one of the things that you had posted on LinkedIn was this idea that uh, since so many people in the region are are uh, uh, you know they're they are they're, they're farmers they're ranchers that that ranching could potentially help stabilize the Sahel uh, uh, could you talk just a little bit about uh, the, the, a little bit more about the reform ideas uh, that you have yeah. discussed uh, to, to to maybe defeat uh, these jihadi groups
2: so as I've mentioned much of the counter-terrorism measures have been kinetic in nature, the use of force, the military, and all that. But the most important issue that has to do with the socioeconomic neglect of the people, the lacking of uh, basic needs, the despair, unemployment, growing population with unemployment, lack of infrastructure, lack of state presence in some areas most of these things are neglected but that is the main cause or the main uh, enabler of jihadism in the sahel now jihadists have been able to take advantage of these challenges with the people to recruit so a young man who has been in the house and has not had a job after school for after business school for about uh, five years, is told that in a month he's going to get five hundred dollars from jihadists. In fact, he will give it a thought, and if that person is not that strong to understand what jihadism is, he might join their ranks and become a fighter for them. And there are millions of people in that situation who are potential recruits for terrorists now the issue here is that for instance pastoralism for centuries people have been moving with animals from one place to another and with uh, growing desertification i mean the, the the region is semi-arid and so the sahara desert is expanding and it's it's i mean semi-arid vegetation are becoming arid so places that were did not used to be desert are becoming desert Climate change and all other factors come to play, overgrazing. So the idea is that what about ranching? And as I wrote some 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 weeks back, ranching, where people are given allocated lands because there are huge lands, and modified or or, or even organic grass that is so much widespread in the savanna is planted in some of these places or distributed for planting for some of these places, for The pastoral uh, people to have ranches and run their farms in a more economical sustainable and um, beneficial way so that they can pay fees they can educate their children and they can fend for themselves while concurrently government construct roads build hospitals and schools to enroll more people in school this is not to say education will, will stop terrorism, because we find very educated people also engaging in terrorism.
1: You, usually as the leaders.
2: <laughs> yes. So, so after education, you need to give jobs. So these are the things, the socioeconomic aspects. Again, inclusion. You cannot keep the Tuareg always in the north and not helping them, not involving them in politics. You don't just involve one or two leaders and think that the whole group will come along. There is a huge gap. You have to bridge the, that gap. So, in Ghana, in the 1980s, uh, the government then realized that there was a huge gap between the north, northern Ghana and southern Ghana. For instance, we didn't have many towns, or almost every town in the north did not have electricity. They were not connected to the national grid. And What happened was that it created this kind of north-south division. The government then decided to extend this electrification. Currently, the gap between the north and south in Ghana is is being bridged or it's closing. It's not the best, but it's closing. So it is very difficult for terror groups to radicalize people in northern Ghana relatively. I'm not saying it's impossible. It is very possible, but it is relatively difficult if you compare that with Mali, Northern Mali and Southern Mali. So the socioeconomic aspect must be dealt with. But unfortunately, now that the house is on fire, in the case of Mali and Wakina Faso, now that the house is on fire, how do you talk of the wiring? Why not quenching the fire first before talking about the wiring? Mm. So now the kinetic approach has become more important because the terrorists are spreading so fast so you need some force to stop them before some of these socioeconomic policies can be implemented but in the case of coastal states in west africa they must do so much in this respect to prevent as a preventive measure against terrorism
1: yeah that that that's that's very well said again uh, fidel I, I would tell you you know the kinetic response to terrorism is really very easy. Uh, in the modern technologies that are out there, we can identify uh, where these uh, terrorist groups are, where they're operating. We can go after them with technology. We can use kinetics. But if you don't get to the root cause of what's you know, starting the terrorist movements, that that is a long-term strategic investment required. And as you said so eloquently, it's it's really – uh, about uh, giving people jobs, educating them and giving them jobs. Uh, we're we're running low on time. we got about nine minutes left. I do want to ask you if you could just take two minutes and tell us a little bit about the influence that Russia's uh, Wagner Group is having in this region.
2: Okay. So thank you very much. Uh, so Wagner has been in Africa for a long time. They were in Mozambique, um, Central Africa Republic, and other places. But in West Africa... Uh, what I know from my personal research is that they had some on and off operations uh, that did not really it was more of ad hoc in nature. But upon the taking over uh, of Bamako, that's the capital of Mali, by the military, they invited Wagner to have a mainstay or to have a foothold in West Africa and in the Sahel. And and by so doing, what what happened is that Wagner does not take cash for payments. It's not that they they, they 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 really do not like money in its liquid form, but they prefer resources to cash. So the agreement that we signed across Africa is that it is protection or security for resources, and that is very very big and can be very very exploitative. Mm. The reason is that, I mean, if he gets hold of a mine, how are you going to determine the quantum? That he's supposed to take away to measure up to the, the the level of security that you you've gotten or you get so these are the things that i mean that's one aspect of it the resource aspect of Wagner's presence again um when you bring in a mercenary force that is backed by a global superpower or great power then how are you as a developing country going to control such a mercenary force You may bring him in, but with time, as the group becomes more uh, powerful and becomes more consequential to your security, you may have less say about what they do. So in Mali, Wagner has been engaging in massacres. And recently, the UN came out with a report that shows that in central Mali, the group supported or backed or was involved in the murder of hundreds of people who were just shot because there was some attack from some terror, terror terror groups and then Wagner went there and started shooting randomly. I mean, picking the young men and then shooting them. And that is amounting to some genocide of some sort with time. So that is one particular reason for this. Another one is that they seem to be pursuing their foreign policy of the mother country or the home country that is Russia rather than just a mercenary force that is there to stick to the books and work according to the agreement that has been signed. So that is a real concern and in Mali and in Burkina Faso, the coming in of Wagner has meant that the government has driven away Western forces. So in Mali, the French forces were asked to leave. Eventually, uh, United Kingdom forces from the United Kingdom also decided to withdraw. And it has had some rippling effect on other nations stationed there. Now the UN forces there have been restricted because the government wants to give Wagner more leeway to operate, more room to operate as against the UN forces. So these are some of the things that Wagner is uh, or, or is, is is engaging in 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 the Sahel.
1: Yeah, and and more on that. The United Nations High Commissioner on for for human rights, uh, there is an estimate there that that uh, that massacre that you're talking about that the Russians uh, Russian Wagner group did about 500 people they killed in uh, a town in, in Mali, uh, and I think uh, if I have it right, uh, Wagner forces were invited in more to provide security for the military junta than to really go after the terror groups. Uh, that are out there uh, across Mali, as an example. Uh, So, uh, Fidel, a couple more questions, maybe two minutes on this one. Are the jihadi groups seeking actual political control over portions or all of the Sahel? Uh, Do they actually have political control over some areas of the Sahel now? Or are they mostly just kind of on the move under constant pressure from uh, what counterterrorism forces are arrayed against? I mean, what, what, what is their objective in the region?
2: Okay. All right. So the larger objective is that they want to create an Islamic state, okay, that is governed by uh, middle Middle Age Quranic interpretations, and perhaps creates a state that uh, is ruled or that can maybe accommodate only Muslims. But the problem here is that Muslims are their worst victims because, as I mentioned, the region is made up of Muslims, a lot of Muslims, and if you were a moderate Muslim, you may face problems with them, because they don't want that. They want extreme interpretation of the Quran, literal interpretation. If uh, someone needed to be decapitated, needed, in court, needed to be decapitated, they will do it. If you stole, your, 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 your limbs are going to be taken off. These are the things they believe in. And that is what they want. And they want territory. Unlike Bin Laden, who wanted to find some safe haven, and plan his attacks, these guys really want a state. They want to run a system. And so, smartly on their part, when they formed the federation, they decided to put a Tuareg as their head. That Tuareg in the the past hasn't been a very radical person, but over time has radicalized himself, and he has been made the figurehead of JNIM. And the reason is that he has more legitimacy because he is a Tuareg who hails from a group that has access to land in Mali. So that is how they want to operate. And recently there was, a, there was a, an interview by France 24 with um, the head of AQIM, Akeem. He said that in West Africa, no territory is limited to their influence, they will continue to do what they are doing and expand their influence. So, um, from what we are seeing, uh, we don't see any. We have they have to be stopped, but they are not going to stop by themselves.
1: That that that, that is disturbing, Fidel. That is very disturbing. <laughs> uh, so we're down to uh, two minutes left. I I always like to give our uh, guests uh, sort of the final word on the show today. Uh, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners regarding the Sahel region in Africa? I can give you about a minute and a half.
2: Yeah. Um, thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, as an African, um, I believe that Africa has the right to deal with many countries that it wishes to deal with. But as an individual, I believe that Africa should deal with open societies. Societies where Um, individuals, even when the government is not doing something right, individuals have the right to air their grievances out. If you have a friend, and he's from a a family where when he's doing something wrong, he's rebuked, then you are safe, because when your friend decides to turn against you, you find some people in his family to stop him from doing that. And that is what I want Africa. Africa should be closer to more open societies. So In what is happening in West Africa or in the Sahel, I think that the United States has interests. There are investments in in the Sahel and in West Africa. There are other interests that the United States has. So, apart from the friendship that it has with the African state, it also has some obligation in terms of protecting its own interests by, I mean, they can only do so by supporting governments that allow such support in order to fight this extremism. Again, um, what, when September 11 happened, I was a very young boy, but I felt really bad about it. And we don't want a situation where a safe haven is created in West Africa where terrorists can plan attacks in other countries, be it in Europe, in North America, or in other places. So I think that there must be collective efforts. It should be African-led, but backed by the West and other interest in order to fight these guys, because these guys, all they know is chaos and how to achieve their goals, regardless of the consequences or of the bloodshed or anything. They want to take whatever they would like to take. So my um, appeal is for the United States to actually support African states that are fighting this court in order to win the fight against extremism.
1: And unfortunately, we'll have to wrap things up there. Uh, Fidel Amache CEO of DefSec Analytics Africa Limited. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a great discussion. I've learned all kinds of things today about which I had no previous knowledge. Uh, are there any resources you might highlight for our listeners uh, just very briefly so they can learn a little bit more about Sahel or or the Western Africa in general?
2: Yeah. yeah so um, uh, basically um, on the Internet, uh, when you go there, I guess that you have to check uh, between false news and So you check your sources. Uh, We have the ISS um, um, and then other institutions in Africa that deals with security. Uh, If you come to DevSecAnalytics.org on our site, we write some articles and put it there. And then if you follow Fidel, I'm actually also on LinkedIn. Um, uh, As uh, the host mentioned earlier, I'm very prolific on Africa, and I try to express my, 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 my opinion as much as I can so we can follow and then we can have discussions from there. Thank you.
1: Fidel Amache Ousu. thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and expertise. You're welcome, sir. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.